At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Good Morning, as we learn from the cries of Israel recorded in the book of Lamentations. Together, we'll discover the depth of God's love for us, even in seasons of suffering, and learn to take our sorrows to the Savior. doing today? Yeah, yeah, it's a great day. Um, can we just give it up for like this band back here this morning? You know, it's really hot in this building, um, but it's also um, such a joy when you can enter into the presence of the Lord um, for a minute and you can forget about the heat around you um, and, and, and just step in to the goodness of his presence. Um, I think that we have some guests with us today. Am I correct in that? Yeah, Tampa, right? I go have a youth group from Tampa Bay. Yeah. Thank you, thank you for, for being here with us. Welcome to uh, our family. That is What's That Detroit. Uh, I don't know how you found this place, but I'll just say to you, you picked a good spot to go because um, we are a very... <laughs> We're a very pro-Tom Brady church. Very pro-Tom Brady church up here in Detroit. So thanks for, for being with us uh, this morning. Hopefully you are enjoying yourselves. You're, uh, you're stepping in uh, at the very, very end of uh, the series that we've been working through uh, together in Lamentations chapter 5 uh, called Good morning. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd just love to invite you to, to join me in that book. It's a book that maybe seldom is um, opened in your Bibles, but it's a, a really, really good book. If you don't have your Bible with you today, it's, uh, it's no worries. We'll have it all on the screen behind me um, as we kind of continue in and yet simultaneously close out of this series that we've been journeying through together over the last five weeks. And um, I don't know about you, but for me, it's been a really fascinating set of weeks as we've spent time both uh, learning about the, the harsh reality of the people of Israel that they find themselves in, and at the same time, right, how their cries of lament, as documented by the poet and prophet Jeremiah, have so much to teach us as humans who no doubt have and, and are now and will experience hardships and, and pain and heartache and grief in this life. Last week, uh, our brother and deacon, Dr. Ryan, laid out this big idea that without God, people ultimately perish. And yet nestled into this truth comes a reason to hope in the midst of a season of lament that even then when life feels at its worst, God is still king and working on our behalf. Right there, right there in that one phrase is the beauty of lament revealed. Just a quick pause, like even that word lament, whether you're joining us today for the first time and, and you're coming in at the very end of a series or you've been here for the last five weeks and we're trying to understand what's happening uh, to the people of Israel, but also trying to comprehend and grasp like what is lament? What does it mean to lament? How do we lament? And really it comes down 
So that one statement right there, the lament invites us, it invites you to turn your gaze from the rubble of life to the redeemer of every hurt. Like, lament calls us to turn toward people, toward the promise while still in pain. And this is exactly what we see in chapter 5 of Lamentations as the poet brings us to our final big idea this morning that lament ultimately brings us back to God. If there's one thing or one of a few things that maybe you'll take away from your time with us this morning, it is this idea and truth that lament ultimately brings us back to God. And what's powerful about this final chapter this morning is that in the midst of a lament that is intense and quite descriptive and sad, exists this very powerful and beautiful belief that God hears, this belief and assumption that God cares, and this belief that God can still act. The poet, the author, the prophet, Jeremiah, in the midst of all of what he has written in this book, comes to the last chapter with this assumption still yet that God can act. And so it is from this place where heartache and suffering encounter pure faith and, and raw hope that we see the first of three laments from the people of Israel to be their disgrace. Lamentations chapter 5, starting in uh, verse 1, it says this, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our home to foreigners. It says, we have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their inequities. When we look at this first section of Scripture, church, we see that the poet is lamenting their disgrace as he starts by calling on God to look and to see and to remember what has befallen them. And maybe that feels uh, awfully familiar to you. In the season of life that you're in right now or a season of life that you're coming out of or potentially a season of life that you know that you are about to walk into, this idea of, of calling on God to look and to see and to remember what has befallen them. And it's important to note that when Jeremiah asks God to remember, it is not in the sense that God has forgotten, but instead a call to act on what God already knows. And in this case, it is their disgrace. Right in verse 2, Jeremiah laments the disgrace of their inheritance lost. It says, our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. You see, the land was their inheritance. Right? The land was their, was their promise, this tangible proof of this covenantal union with God. But now, because of sin, because of their actions, 
It's gone. Because of the actions of the people, God no longer has his inheritance, the people, and therefore they will no longer have their inheritance. Talk about disgrace. In verse 3, he laments the disgrace of becoming like orphans and widows. And in verse 4, he shares the reality of living like aliens in their own land, right? Having to pay for the basic things in life like, like water and other natural materials. If you remember back to what God said about this particular land, it was a place of beauty overflowing milk and honey, and yet now here are these people in their own land, in their own home, suffering for the likes of water. Verse 5, he describes a, a situation of exhaustion at the hands of soldiers and goes on to articulate the embarrassment of dealing with former enemies like Egypt just for the basics like food. And in all of it, really what we're seeing here is this present generation bearing the weight of the sins of the generations prior. And as Ryan touched on last week, the author knows that they themselves are not just innocent victims on the wayside. Right, this book, Lamentations, is a book full of references to sin and wrongdoing. And what the poet is calling on God to remember here is their reproach and their shame because of it. And personally, I think that it speaks rather loudly to two very specific truths this morning. The first is that sin has roots, church. The second is, where do you go in your shame. Right, as the story culminates in, in chapter 5, we see that the people are bearing the iniquities of their fathers. The reality is sin has roots, and because of that, it will never simply just affect you. That is almost a, a whole another message in and of itself, but the reality is your sin, it will never just affect you. And in that, secondly, where do we go in our shame or disgrace is key. You see, shame can be the worst if you've ever experienced it which I know for a fact that all of you have. All of us have. Yeah. It's the worst, right? As the enemy uses it to really isolate us away from others and, and isolate us away from God, and yet we also know that disgrace is the opposite of grace. Grace, right? This unmatched, undeserved, infinite kindness of God that is promised by Jesus to be waiting for you when you come boldly with your sin to him. I love the analogy that was taught to me once about grace and about forgiveness. Boy, did it shift my life. 
See, shame and guilt is absolutely a tactic of our enemy to isolate you away from people and isolate you away from God. I really can't think of anything better for an enemy to desire than that. We find ourselves, before we know it, wandering alone in the midst of our shame and in the midst of our guilt, and we know that that we really are called back to the Father, but that separation feels so much farther than it actually is. Right? And when he says, when he says that, that grace or this infinite kindness of Jesus is promised to you and waiting for you when you come back to him with your sin, he means it. See, God is not a cruel God. Jesus is not a, a cruel king. When he says that it's waiting for you, he means that it is literally waiting for you. And yet how often do we find ourselves in in moments of repentance with the Father and our language sounds more like, God, please forgive me. Like we're begging, we're pleading with God to, to give us something that he says it's already waiting for you there. So we say, God, please, please forgive me. But do we actually receive it then or do we wait Until a day or two later, we feel okay about ourselves. See, God says, come to me with your sin. Come to me with your pain. Come to me with your brokenness and your shame and your guilt and your lament. And receive it. Because I already gave it. It's such a mindset shift. The kingdom of heaven is such a mindset shift. So as the people lament their disgrace, secondly, they begin to lament their enslavement. Picking up in Lamentations 5, verse 8, the word says this, slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are violated in Zion. Young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill. And boys stagger under loads of wood. It says, the old men have left the city gate. The young men, their music, the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. Jeremiah says, the crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. The second thing that the poet laments, church, is the enslavement of God's people. This verse 8 really sets the tone for the section. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hands. You see, slaves that were once free by the power of God in the Exodus are now being ruled by the lowest ranks of the conquering army with no hope in sight. Put yourself in, in, in those shoes for a second. You don't want to. Verse 9 reminds us that 
Once a people whose story was getting water and manna and quail in the wilderness from the Father now finds themselves at death's doorstep just for a piece of bread. Not only are the women mistreated, but the older men are given zero dignity. Princes are subject to torture and execution, and the young find themselves doing the work of servants. This book paints a pretty awful picture, and Jeremiah does not hold back in his description of what's happening to the people of Israel. Right, verse 14 speaks of an absence of leadership and governance by the elders and a lack of celebration in music from the youth. And really what this text portrays is the totality of an entire people silenced and broken down. Come on. Silenced and broken down a people whose joy has turned to mourning as they have lost all that once made them this national sovereign nation. And as Jeremiah writes that the crown has fallen from their head, it is here in the very next line that the recognition of their own sin comes full circle yet again as the poet says, woe to us for we have sinned. See, it's crazy to me that such a short and simple phrase can pack such a powerful punch to the gut. And yet, in this deep moment of of self-awareness where the sorrow of an entire people breaks to the surface, it does. And it's sad. Right? It's, it's, it's truly sad. And for us, for you and me who have the, the privilege and the opportunity to read through the, the pain and the consequences of a group of people's choices in one sitting, may we take heed. To read the verse uh, another way, it would say, if only we had never sinned. To read the verse another way, Jeremiah would say, if only we had never sinned, and you can feel and sense the desperation and the sorrow in a statement such as that. If only we had never sinned. And I wonder if if this is as much a warning to the next generation as it is a present lament to the Lord. But I wonder what was going through Jeremiah's mind in this moment. Was he thinking solely of of the lament in front of him, or was he thinking of you and me and the people that would come after him who would read this story and read this book? And I wonder if it was as much a warning to us as it was a lament to him. John 8.34, Jesus says that everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Well, we must take that seriously. The Bible also says that because of Christ's life and his death and his resurrection, 
we as followers or those of us who have chosen to follow Jesus as our personal Savior are made righteous in the eyes of the Father and by his power are overcomers. Romans 8, 31 through 37 says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. John 16, verse 33, Jesus declares this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That is the Jesus we pursue in this place. That is the Jesus that, that, that calls down over you and says, I love you and I'm for you. The Jesus, right, in Romans, where it says that he is at the right hand of God and he is interceding for you. Do you understand what that means, church? This Jesus, if we could pull that right back up, the John 16, really quick. This Jesus is interceding for you. To intercede for you means that he is standing in the gap on your behalf speaking and talking to the Father with you in mind. Jesus, right? The one that says, I have overcome the world. He says, but take heart. And you know, I'm not sure where, where each of you find yourself on your faith journey this morning. I'm not sure where each of you find yourself in your sin journey this morning. But as the Israelites are lamenting their enslavement, I need you to know that in Christ there is freedom from your bondage of temptation and addiction and shame and guilt. And you insert whatever it is in your life this morning that the enemy is beating you down with. And there is freedom in it because of Jesus, because of the one who intercedes for you because of the one who sits next to the Father, because of the one who has complete victory and authority in all of heaven and all of earth. Church, that, that is the power of the cross. You see, what's amazing about Jesus is that just because we're stepping into an Old Testament book 
He is absolutely everywhere within it. Finally, the last thing that the the people of Israel lament is their estrangement or separation from God. Verse 17, Lamentation chapter 5 says this, For this our heart has become sick, for these things our eyes have grown dim. From Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. I mean, just right there, what a roller coaster of emotion. Maybe you find yourself on that same roller coaster in different seasons of your life. God, you're so good to me, but why are you letting this happen? God, I love you, but this can't be you. God, I know that I am yours, but do you even love me anymore? You see, our lives are not so different from the lives of the people in this book. The last thing we see the poet lament is their estrangement as the people of God are separated from their Yahweh. Could you imagine that? The scripture tells us that they have sinned and their sin has affected their relationship with him. And if you take one thing From this series, if you take one thing from today, it is that sin absolutely affects your life. What has been described previously in this prayer and in this book has caused their hearts to become sick, verse 17, and the summation of it all is that Mount Zion now lies desolate. Mount Zion, maybe you've heard of this particular place. The Mount Zion, right? The place where God dwells in Isaiah chapter 8 in Psalm 74. The place where God is king in Isaiah 24. The place where God installed his king, David, in Psalm chapter 2 verse 6. That Mount Zion, the place and the seat of action for God in their history. And now it lies deserted and empty and bleak. Because they are separated from his presence. Once a a holy city set on a hill is now a mound of charred rubble defiled by the likes of unclean animals. And yet, God's throne still endures. You see, nothing that happens in this place can ever Take that truth away. God's throne still endures, and here's the thing about man and God. To man, the destruction of a city, of a throne, of a tangible place equals the end of an era. But for God, right? But for God, the one who operates outside of of our understanding and time, his throne will always endure. 
And we see that as the poet clings tightly to this promise. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Life is hard. And tragedy happens. You've all experienced it. I can't pretend to even understand what some of you have walked through, what some of you are walking through. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. We talk about a quick pivot. What Jeremiah is revealing here is the power of lament to anchor us to the yet of God's character. See, in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Mark Rogop speaks to this when he writes, in my study of lament, I've come to love the word yet. It marks the place and the journey where pain and belief coexist. It is how we gain the confidence to ask boldly despite the sorrow and grief that we feel. Yet means that I choose to keep asking God for help to cry out to him for my needs even when the pain of life is raw. That phrase right there has been monumental in the last month and a half of even bringing me out of a season of, of darkness and, and uncertainty about things in my life. Before you know it, you find yourself a week or two or three weeks into this place and you realize, man, I haven't talked to God in a while. And then, and then in the awareness of that moment, our enemy sneaks in and he says, yeah, and don't start now. And then it's four weeks and five weeks and, and six weeks and sometimes it's, it's months and then it's years and you realize I haven't talked to God and Mark in his book says yet means that I choose to keep asking God for help to cry out to him for my needs even and might I add especially when the pain of life is raw. Yet reminds us that sorrow doesn't have to yield before we ask God for help. Part of the grace of lament is the way it invites us to pray boldly, even when we are bruised badly. You see, God's glory had left the earthly building, but God himself had not been toppled from his heavenly throne and the revelation and understanding and belief in this truth will radically shift the perspective of the entire prayer. God still reigning on his throne amid their, their trouble really provides the foundation for hope because if he still is on the throne, it means that he can still change circumstances. You have to know that, church. No matter what you are going through today, no matter how bleak, no matter how alone you may feel, no matter how dark the clouds around you may be, if he is still on his throne, which he is, it means that he can still change circumstances. 
You see, the roadmap to grace in lament involves an appeal for God to remember while at the same time rehearsing and being honest with your pain. And even in this chapter, the bulk of the verses paint this dismal and, and painful picture through heartfelt complaint. But believe me when I say that this rehearsing of pain has a purpose. Vrogop goes on to say in his book, the full throttle cataloging of pain sets the context for the call for God to remember. There's a purpose in it. Right? The full throttle cataloging of pain before the Lord sets the context for the call for God to remember. However, it has been my experience that many Christians or followers of Jesus are uncomfortable with the tension of the long rehearsing of pain combined with the appeal to God's grace. It's kind of uncomfortable, actually. It says we tend to hush the recitation of sorrow. However, Restoration doesn't come to those who live in denial. I wonder what would happen if more Christians confidently walked into the darkest moments of life and guided people in talking to God about their pain. Got to get this book. I told you four weeks ago. I bet none of you did. Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy by Mark Vrogop. Discovering the grace of lament. What's our definition of, of grace? Discovering the unimaginable kindness of lament. See, church, this is the essence and heart of lament, this journey, the one that starts with an address to God, followed by a complaint and a request, and finally, this expression of trust amid the pain. If you're new with us today, if you've never heard of lament before in your life, that is the basic definition and structure of it, so I'll say it again in case you might want to write it down. Lament starts with an addressed to God. You gotta talk to God. You gotta open up your mouth to God. From there, it, it, it moves into a complaint. We gotta be honest with the Lord. And guess what? The Lord invites you to be honest with Him. From complaint moves to request. We're, we're telling Him what's going on. We're literally complaining to God. But what's beautiful about God is that he doesn't just want us to sit in our complaint, but he actually says, now what do you want? What do you want me to do about it? Think about Jesus. The man comes to him and Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? The man says, heal me. Jesus says, I will heal. And finally, this expression of, of trust amid the pain. Jeremiah said, the crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned, for this has become, our heart has become sick. For these things, our eyes have grown dim. From Mount Zion, right? He says, Mount Zion, the place where God's presence dwelled, lies desolate. And the very next phrase is this, but you, O Lord, reign forever. 
Your throne endures to all generations. A moment of trust in the midst of their pain and uncertainty. Much like our poet not knowing what the outcome will be, it is how we live between the poles of a hard life and the sovereignty of God. Life is, is hard. It's overwhelming. What I love about this church is the, the vast majority of generations that we have present, even this morning, young and old. I was in high school once, not that long ago, actually. It's not easy to be in high school. College is great, but it also isn't that easy. And then you, you graduate, and um, you, you, you quickly realize that um, it's a kind of a dog-eat-dog world. Jobs are hard, and they're great, and they're hard. And really what I'm saying is just people are messy and people are broken. And yet, God is still good and God is still in control. Right, there's so, there's so much to absorb as it pertains to this spiritual practice and gift of lament. It is a gift from the Lord to us. My challenge today is the same challenge that it was at the start of our series. Press in, ask questions, read and study and make this an integral aspect of your life. You know, as church would have it, we finished one series today and, and a week from now we're in a brand new series and a brand new book talking about brand new things. And it's so easy to forget the moment right now Press in and ask questions, read and study and make lament this integral aspect of your life. It's a process and it's not easy, but church lament ultimately brings us back to Christ and in Christ is where we find true freedom from our disgrace, true freedom from our enslavement and true freedom from our separation with the Father. song that that that, uh, that they um, that they let us in um, after the announcements and after um, the, the tithe I don't remember exactly what it said but I remember how I felt in the midst of it you know it's a funny thing as pastors they say no one's ever gonna remember anything that you said Pat but they will remember how they felt when you said it. And um, we 
sang that song, right, Touch of Heaven. And Andrew prayed into just the presence of God. And in that moment, I was reminded of, of a word that the Lord placed on my heart at that prayer meeting that Kevin uh, shared a little bit about with you um, a, a little while ago. Sitting in this back corner of our office as we listen to worship and, and as different people from our staff and our leadership team prayed and, and cried out to God in the season that our church is in. Because for, for those of you that are just visiting today, our church is in a really unique season. And to say that it has been easy, it, it would be a lie. Right? We're, we're, we're in the midst of searching for our next campus pastor, for our, our proverbial leader. We exist in a, in a beautiful and wonderful city. Racial tension is high, and we just want to—we just want to love God. We want to—we want to be what He has for us to be. But it's hard because there's a real enemy in our midst, and a lot of you are are broken down today. A lot of you have lost hope today. A lot of you feel alone today. A lot of you feel isolated today. A lot of you feel like maybe your voice isn't heard today, whether it is in this place or just in life in general. A lot of you come into this place today sick, physically sick, spiritually sick, emotionally sick, and tattered, and over it, and done. I'm just done. Pat, I'm just done with it all, man. I don't have anything left. I'm just done. And yet in that moment, the Lord breaks in said to us on Wednesday, and he says to us now, collectively, but he also says to each of you individually this. He says, when you are on edge, my presence is where I pull you back and open your eyes to my presence in your situation. When you are on edge, this is the place I have for you to come and charge. To come and reset, to come and realign. He says, in my presence, in this prayer room, in this worship room, in my presence is where you come for the spiritual adjustment. He says, let me be the chiropractor of your tight and twisted spirit, your compressed minds and your wound up thoughts. In this place is where you align with me. In this place is where you find your fortress of solitude in my presence. In this place is where I realign you individually, but also collectively. See, church, it doesn't take much for a nerve to fall out of alignment. You will experience that as you get older. It doesn't take much for a nerve to fall out of alignment, but to the skilled doctor, to the skilled chiropractor, it doesn't take much to put it back. 
doesn't take much to realign. And he says to you today, I am that doctor. He says to you today, come to me always. He says to you today, the enemy will do everything he can to isolate you away from me and to silence you in my presence. But break through, have courage. I have overcome. And I sit in heaven next to my Father. And I intercede for you daily. And I love you. And I am for you. I have overcome. I have overcome. I have overcome. He says to you today, I have overcome because you cannot overcome. I have overcome. And I don't need you to do anything except come to me, the overcomer. I don't need you to do anything except come to me, the overcomer, and open up your mouth. And if it's complaint, bring it to me. If it's sorrow, bring it to me. Guess what, church? I cannot, me, Pat, I cannot physically and emotionally and spiritually handle all of your complaints. But God says, I have overcome. Walk the right into my presence. Because in my presence is grace waiting for you. In my presence is unimaginable kindness, unfathomable kindness, infinite kindness waiting for you. I can't handle it, nor can I comprehend it, nor do I have the grace that you need, but he does. And he says, I have overcome, I am the overcomer, and I love you. I love you so much that I overcame. And he invites us in to this journey by giving us this gift of lament. And so, Father, today we just declare that you are the overcomer. And no trial and no tribulation, as hard as it may be, as sad as it may be, as painful as it may be, even to the point of, of death, you are the overcomer. Give us, God, for the times that we have not come right to you, Jesus, but we will come to you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, right now, you are already ministering to these people. Would you continue it in Jesus' name? God, I pray for deep revelations. God, I pray for deep breakthrough today. God, I pray for, for the breaking off of shame and guilt the lives of people today, God, we say that you have had your run, but enough, it is done, your time is up, the game is over, in Jesus' name, I declare all shame and all guilt is breaking in Jesus' name in this place. And my eyes are closed, but today, today is a glorious day, because today is the opportunity for us to say, hey, it's up to you what you want to do with masks. And so because of that, I'm going to ask that our prayer team and our prayer leaders would come. And if you need prayer today, if you need to talk today, 
getting you to respond today. Today is the day. We're ready to do that with you. We're excited to do that with you. You know, so often in church when a guy, a pastor, a leader says, hey, come to the front and respond. That invitation is just like bathed in, in uncomfortable, right? Because if you stand up and you come to the front, that communicates to everybody around you. That person has something going on in their life. I wonder what it is. What are they dealing with? What's that secret sin? Not in this place. Not in this place. You come freely and openly and with confidence and boldness into the presence of Jesus, the one who has all of the power to overcome in your life. So God, we respond to you today. It is our joy and it is our privilege to worship you today. It is our joy and our privilege and our honor to be in your presence today and to have your presence here with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Father, we love you. We always need you. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.